It's been a while. It's been a month since we've been in the book of Exodus. Uh, we're in chapter 32. And uh, why don't we pray as we uh, come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. And God, this morning I just pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better today, Lord. I pray, God, uh, today that you would show us your glory, Lord. That you would uh, speak to our hearts, Lord, to our minds. That you would challenge us, Lord. I pray that God, uh, you just birth in our hearts this morning a, a greater desire for your presence and to know you. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that fan on okay? You guys freezing this morning? I'm freezing. Do you want to turn the heat off or is it all right? Okay, we'll leave it on. Right on, Exodus chapter 32. We left off in our series in Exodus, like I said, a month ago. I think it was December 7th last time we were in there. I was looking back this week. I'm like, we started our Exodus series in April. And so hopefully we'll be done by April. No, we're definitely going to be done uh, by the end of this month. But um, we, left, we left off here a month ago with Moses coming down from the top of Mount Sinai. He had spent 40 days and 40 nights up there in the presence of the Lord without food, without water. Uh, he had received uh, instructions regarding the building of the tabernacle and the establishment of the priesthood and how Israel was to worship. Of course, he had received uh, those stone tablets inscribed with the finger of God and the, which recorded the Ten Commandments. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, while Moses is up there on the mountain with the Lord, we know that down the bottom of the mountain where the people of Israel were, as they saw their, their leader delayed, was delayed and they wondered where Moses was, they grabbed his brother Aaron and Aaron cons consented to the will of the people and they fashioned a golden calf and they began to bow down and worship this thing. They were presenting peace offerings to it. They were eating and drinking and uh, we read in the Exodus chapter 32 that they were cast, they'd cast off all restraints. In, in the name of worshiping God. It was idolatry. Uh, there was immorality involved. And God saw it all. In Exodus 32. The Lord calls the people of Israel. A stiff necked people. And as Moses is still up the mountain there with the Lord. The, the Lord says leave me alone for a minute Moses. Because uh, I'm going to go down and I'm going to consume these people and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And as we saw way back a month ago and as we read in Exodus chapter 32, Moses began to implore the Lord and he interceded on behalf of, of the people of Israel and he reminded God of the covenant that he had made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and he implored the Lord to remember how with a mighty hand he had brought these people out of Egypt and the Lord relented from bringing disaster on the children of Israel. And then Moses comes down the mountain. And he discovered that things were just as the Lord had said. That these people had truly thrown off all restraint. That, that Aaron had bowed to the will of the people. And they were worshiping around the golden calf. And in that scene that you, that you picture in your mind's eye. Or maybe it's Charlton Heston in your mind or whatever it is. Moses came down the mountain and he threw down the stone tablets that were inscribed by the finger of God and he broke them. The only man to break all ten commandments in one shot, right? And so, you know, the story of the golden calf where we're about to dive into here again and just wrap that part of the story up reveals just the, the tendency and the inclination of the human heart uh, towards idolatry. As I was thinking about it, you know, it, it's because humans, we are, we are made to worship. We are made to be worshipers. The very reason that God led his children to Mount Sinai was that they may worship me. And that he would dwell with them there. And the, the life and relationship with God that the children of Israel were to have... It, there at Mount Sinai and even eventually living in the promised land was rooted in the fact that they were a people who were called uh, to be the Lord's possession. 
to be his dwelling place, a people who were called to worship Yahweh, the living God, the creator. But there is this inclination of the human heart that, that leans away from true worship and towards idolatry. You know, Jesus said, it's something that's come up lots in our series through Exodus, that, that God desires true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, whenever I think about that statement, I think, that's kind of vague. Like, what does that mean? Do you ever wonder that about that statement? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? And, and that's the attitude that idolatry takes. It says, that's vague. I need, I need more form and function to that. So I'm going to give that form and function. Idolatry says, I, I know there's a, a God in heaven, but that's a high lofty thing for me to conceptualize. I know he's wonderful, but just to bring him down so that I can relate to him a little bit, I'm going to make idols. I'm going to form images of him. I'm going to make things that represent him and I'll worship him. You see, the weird thing about the Israelite idolatry uh, in this whole story with the golden calf was that they, you, you know, Aaron says, yeah, we'll worship God. We'll present peace offerings. We'll bring food offerings. We'll bring drink offerings and it'll be a feast to the Lord. Meanwhile, it's a golden calf that they're dancing around. And you know, it's not that the Israelites, and I would say lots of times for us, it's not that we desire to break the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But it's that we find the demands of the second commandment too great. You shall not fashion an image of your God. An idol, a representation that can be seen. And that's the heart of idolatry, really. It's this, that the human, it's not that human beings want to live without God. It's just that we want to substitute him for something visible. For something that we can taste and touch and see and smell. And we replace him with an image rather than learning what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. You know, I think back to that story from Genesis where Jacob was packing up his families, his, his wife, Rachel and Leah and all his boys, and they were leaving Laban, his father-in-law, to return uh, to the land of Isaac where, where God was calling Jacob to raise his family. And as they were sneaking off from Laban in fear of him, Genesis 31 tells us that Rachel took the household gods. It's this weird story. She takes the idols from her father's house and she brings them with them and, and has them hidden. And you, you know the story when Laban comes uh, searching for his family, one of the things he comes looking for is the household gods because they've disappeared in this whole move. Not much of a god. But, you know, that is really the advantage of an idol, it's, it's like what Rachel did. You can take your idol with you. You can pack up your idol and move it along with you. But, but Yahweh, the living God, our creator, the God whom we're called to serve and to worship in spirit and truth isn't like that. He doesn't go our way. We can't pack him up and take him where we want to go. If we want him, then we have to go his way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, of course. But he said, I am the way. He said, look, you're not setting the direction here. I'm setting the course. I'm setting the direction. And you have to come my way. So let's pick up the story. Exodus chapter 32, uh, verse 25 is where we are. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. So like I said, instead of worshiping in spirit, Aaron had formed an image, an, an idol of God. And it's so that with their physical senses, it's like, what happened to Moses? I don't know, he's gone. Let's fashion something. In a sense, you know, 
Moses was almost an idol for them. That they were worshiping their leader rather, rather than worshiping God. But Aaron, Aaron formed this idol, this image of God, so that they could apprehend with their physical senses, with their eyes, with touch, with all these different senses, rather than apprehending God by the Spirit. You know, when we consider Abraham, the story of Abraham, the Bible tells us that Abraham was counted righteous because he believed God in faith. He took God at his word. The Bible even specifically tells us that though Abraham couldn't see, he chose to believe. That's faith. Even though he, he couldn't you know, see with his eyes the immediate fulfillment of God's promise to him, in faith he chose to believe God, take God at his word, and in faith he acted upon God's word, and God counted him as righteous for believing him. Idolatry rejects what Abraham did. Idolatry rejects the action of faith and taking God at his word. Idolatry instead seeks to discover God, to lay hold of God, to ascertain God with physical senses. With an idol, you know, you can see it, you can smell it, you can touch it, you you can taste it. And, and senses take the lead rather than the spirit taking the lead. And the result for the Israelites was this, is that it, as they got involved in idolatry, it quickly descended into this unbridled sensuality. You know, when Moses came down the, the mountain, it says the people had broken loose, we read here. The King James Version says that they were naked. That it was, they had cast off all restraint. They were naked and it was everything that goes with it. And I guess as I talk about idolatry, I want to make this connection in our hearts and mind between the fact that the people had uh, entered into idolatry and they had broken loose. The result was that they, broken loo- they had broken loose. See, when, when human senses take possession of the mind... And you and I know this in our own battles against sin. When when human senses take possession of the mind, your senses paralyze your ability to resist. Resist sin, resist your, your desire to follow sin, and your senses wreak havoc on human will. You know that. We all know that. That's what sin does to us. And before Jesus... Senses, human appetites ruled over our bodies and there was no strength, no ability really to resist sin. But when Christ became our Lord, he reordered our lives so that we could worship him in spirit and in truth. He put the spirit in charge over the senses, over the will, over the body. He gave us the gift of a helper, a counselor, the Holy Spirit. Who would teach us and help us resist sin and say yes to righteousness. And it works. It it really works, doesn't it? Until we change the order and we let the senses and the appetites of the body rule over the leading of the Holy Spirit. And when does that happen? You know, here's the key to, to figuring out when there's patterns of sin in your life. When does that happen? With idolatry. With idolatry. See, if you root out the idol, if you can see idolatry for what it is, then then you will discover the key to sin issues in your life. And the Holy Spirit will be able to help you. You'll, You'll know when to call on him. I'm in trouble. Help me. So, you know, it's been said, and I, and I like to say, we don't have a sin problem. We have a worship problem. We begin to worship other things. Worship God. Now, verse 26 says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him. So Moses gets to the camp. He does a few things, just to, just to remind you what happened. Uh, first thing is this. He destroys the idol. <laughs> crashes. Kicks it down. Grinds it up. Spreads it on the water. Makes the people drink it. Destroys the idol. Then he deals with his brother Aaron. Who's 
living a lie at this point in time. No, it just threw the gold into the fire and out came a calf. Come on, Aaron, really? So Moses forcefully deals with Aaron. And then he stands here at the gate of the camp and he says, who's on the Lord's side? I like that line, eh? We used to to sing this song in Sunday school. Uh, Yeah, who's on the Lord's side? And and we would have these, uh, we'd, we'd have these different lines that we'd do in our Sunday school, like, I'm on the Lord's side. Okay, who's leaning on the Lord's side? I'm leaning on the Lord's side. Or we, I'm skiing on the Lord's side. Or whatever, I'm doing it on the Lord's side. And we had a, a young girl by the name of Eileen in our, in our Sunday school. And so when we'd sing, I'm leaning on the Lord's side, all the kids would snicker and look over at Eileen, Okay. Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? And the sons of Levi gather around him. Verse 27. Moses was of the tribe of Levi. Verse 27. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men, 3,000 men of the people fell. That day the law came down from Mount Sinai through the hand of Moses and 3,000 people died. We flip to the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, the day the Holy Spirit came down. What happened? 3,000 were saved. Because the Bible tells us the law brings death. But the Spirit brings life. Verse 29. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service, for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And we've seen this earlier in the book of Exodus that originally God's intention was that that the firstborn male from every family would be taken from amongst the people of Israel and they would be set aside into the, the role of uh, serving the Lord as a, a priest. But this is the point here because only the Levites were willing to stand up and to do what needed to be done spiritually amongst the people of Israel that they now become the sole tribe involved in the priestly ministry. That is the blessing that God gave them for responding and standing against sin that was happening in the midst of the people. Brutal scene. Striking down their their brothers and their family members and their friends. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The word atonement, it's like one of those church words that we use, right? It means cover up. Moses says, perhaps I can cover this up with God. See, that's how sin was dealt with in the Old Testament before Jesus. It was just a cover-up, right? Then Jesus gave his life on the cross. He, he died in our place for our sin. He was buried. He was raised to life. And the atoning work that Jesus did for our sin on the cross, it's not just a cover-up. The New Testament concept is not cover-up. It's wash away. It's been washed away. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're washed away to the point that we're made so new. It says, as if in the sight of God we had never sinned. What an awesome thing that is. As if we'd never sinned. Verse 31 says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods, gods of gold. So Moses, in the presence of God, begins to confess the sin of the people. Confession simply means that he began to agree with God about sin, about the reality of sin. See, if you want to get along with God, you have to call sin, sin. Confess it and, and repent of it. And the people had sinned a great sin against God and Moses spelled it out. He said, God, they made, they made gods of gold. You know, for, for us, when we sin against the Lord, and we're asking him to forgive us? Spell it out, man. Make it clear before the Lord. Agree with God about your sin and ask him to forgive you, and he will. Verse 32, Moses says, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, 
Please blot me out of the book that you have written. Wow, what a powerful thing Moses does here. He says, Lord, if, if you don't forgive the sin of these people, then blot my name out of the book of life. Wow, it's, that's amazing to me. To have a heart for his people like that. See, Moses identified uh, with, with these people so much. And I, I think that was really for him birthed out of his, his own time with the Lord. And, and having relationship with God. He had a heart for his people. But the Lord said to Moses, verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And so God responds to Moses just by, by letting him know that he deals with individuals. That he deals with sinners as individuals. That he deals with us personally, but but this heart of Moses actually begins to move the hand of God. Let's check it out. Verse 34. He says, but now go. Time to, time to leave Sinai. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in that day when I visit, I, when I, visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. The one that Aaron had made. Oh, Aaron, I thought it walked out of the fire. Very clear. Aaron made it. God says, all right, I forgive the people. I forgive them this sin against me. Not only do I forgive them, I'm going to send my angel. And he will lead these people into that promised land. Of course, this is Jesus. Uh, the son of God. The pre-incarnate Jesus would lead them. But the Lord says, nevertheless, there's going to be a there's repercussion for sin. That's always the way it is with sin, right? There's a cost. Sin's not free. And so God, God, still for us, He forgives our sin when we confess it, but there is always a cost with sin. And we come to chapter 33. It says this. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send the angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with, among you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You know, earlier in chapter 32, we didn't read it this morning, but when Moses appeals to God uh, to have mercy on the people, he reminds them that he, you're the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Remember Israel? You made a covenant with him. But look what the Lord says here in verse 1 as he speaks of the people. He says, I am the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the old man. And yes, I've sworn this land to you, but you, you know, he, he, he says here, they're the people you led out of Egypt. You know, God doesn't take the credit at this point for leading these people out of Egypt. He gives it to Moses and he says, you take them into the promised land, which I swore. And, and I'll drive out your enemies, but I'm not going to, Go with you. You think about Moses up to this point. You know, it's, it's been familiar ground for this guy. Uh, at Mount Sinai, they've been dwelling and spending time here at the place where he lived, you know, or in the area where he lived with his father-in-law for 40 years as he was in exile from Egypt, hiding out in the desert, living as a Bedouin Shepherd, he lived in the region of Sinai. He had visited Mount Sinai with his flock. He had had the burning bush experience there. You know, he had done the trip back and forth to Egypt. He, he knew the land. He knew the territory. He knew the geography. But now comes the next part of the journey. And for Moses, it's going to be unfamiliar territory. Unknown desert. New foes. New experiences, new challenges. And God says this, I'll drive out the inhabitants of the land, 
But here's the hitch for the next part. This is a stiff-necked people. And God says, if I go with you, I will consume you. So I'm not going with you. It's not that God would kill them in his anger. He's not speaking here in anger. He's just or, or saying that they would die from being in his presence, but that they would simply as a stiff-necked, rebellious people melt in the heat of his glory, in a sense. I was thinking about my fireplace at home. It's raging right now, I hope. The dammer's closed. It's plugged full, chock full of wood. You know, away for a couple days this week, and I come home, and our house is like an icebox without that thing rolling and blasting out the heat. And having the presence of a wood stove in our house, the flame, the fire that it contains on a cold winter day is an awesome thing, isn't it? That's because the fire is contained within steel and we get to enjoy the benefits of the heat that it produces. But if I go up to that wood stove and lay my hand on it, ooh, not a good idea, right? It's dangerous. If the fire escapes the containment of that steel, there's going to be injury and there's going to be destruction of our home. And that's kind of what the Lord is saying. I'll promise you the benefits of my blessing, but for you as stiff-necked people, my presence going with you is a dangerous thing, and I'm not going. Check out what happens with the people in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, man, that's worth underlining. This was disastrous in their mind. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to this people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, onward. This is the third time in this short little section that God says, you're a stiff-necked people. And to the people of Israel, this was disastrous. God says, I'm not going with you. You say, you say really, is that, well, maybe it's not that disastrous. I mean, you can, you can go to the promised land. You get the fulfillment of all the promises. The enemies are all dri being driven away. The, the generation's old promise to Abraham Isaac and, and Jacob regarding the land of Canaan is going to be fulfilled. Isn't this pretty good? But for the Israelites, even though they're in this state of being involved in idolatry and carnality and, and, and sin, they mourned when they heard this. See, for them having the promise of God fulfilled and yet not having the presence of God with them was not a good thing. No. We need God. We, we need his presence. I don't just want his promise. I want his presence. And the people displayed their repentance by not wearing their ornaments. They, you know, this was not a time to outwardly dress up the flesh. This was a time to begin to get your heart right with God. And, and that's really the true heart of revival. It's not the outward pursuits of having God's blessing it's having God himself needing him and understanding your need for him and seeking him and, and having him bless you with his presence in your life you know many times we seek the hand of God without seeking the face of God and these people mourned because they did not want the hand of God without the face of God. Don't give us the promise and not the presence. You know, I was thinking about our week of prayer. I, I just want that to be our heart for the week of prayer when we start next week. You know, this isn't about your hand. This is just about your presence. We need you, God. We're hungry for you. To be known by you and to know you and to seek your face and to draw near to you. And these people, it was disastrous for them to hear that God was not coming with them to the promised land. Verse 7. 
Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now this isn't the tabernacle that we did all that study on, okay? That, that's not yet, it hasn't been all pulled together yet. It hasn't been constructed yet. This is just a tent for meeting God. And Moses packs it up here and he moves it outside the camp. It's kind of, you know, in a sense like he is saying, to, you know, the Lord has said, I'm not going to be in the midst of these people anymore. And Moses says, well, if, if you're not there, God, then I don't want to be there either. I'm going to go somewhere where I can find you, where I can meet with you, where you are. Uh, you know, he's saying, Lord, I, I want to I be where you are. I need your presence. Verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, remember this pillar had been at the center of the camp. The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and they would worship each at his tent door. So by making the tent outside the camp, Moses was, you know, I guess in a sense drawing the line to see who really wanted to worship God and who really wanted to draw close to God. And the people watched. And when Moses worshipped, they worshipped. Uh, they were prompted to draw near to God by his example. And, and the pillar of cloud which sem symbolized the presence of God would descend at the door of the tent. And there in the tent, what an awesome thought. You, you know, we're going to read about it some more here. The Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Speaking to God face to face. What an awesome picture that is for us. It, it's not literal. It's a, it's a figurative expression that means there was open and free fellowship between Moses and God. Moses did not, had not, would not literally see the face of God. We know that from elsewhere in scripture. You know the apostle John tells us no one has ever seen God but we've seen his glory in Jesus Christ. And yet, amazing, never seen God, and yet we can have a face-to-face -face relationship with God. In the sense that it's free. It, it's an open relationship. And you think about it, every one of us is as close to God as we want to be. That's the key right there. As we want to be. God is... God is willing and he's ready to take you and I as far as we want to go with him. But he doesn't take us any step further than we're willing to go. And Moses here, you know, as I read this, it's like he is having a personal revival in his relationship with the Lord. And it's having a, an effect on the nation. And it's having a, an effect on his young assistant Joshua. You know Joshua would be the man who would choose to. Who God would choose to lead Israel. After Moses. And when you know. Joshua got to the tent of meeting. Even after Moses was done. And was leaving. Joshua could not pull himself away. From the presence of God. He, he would stay in the presence of God. It's no wonder he became the man. That God chose to lead Israel. After Moses. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord. See, you say to me, bring up these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Because God's not going with them. He continues. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and, also, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, that this nation is your people. And he said, this is the Lord, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now it's just awesome that Moses begins to cry out to God and he says, God, I, 
What am I going to do? Who are you going to send with me? Yeah, you say you know me and that your favor is on my life. But if I found favor and you're not going, I need you to show me your ways. You have to, you have to teach me. You have to guide me. And the Lord responds to him and says, okay, I will go with you. My presence will be with you. And the Lord says, I will give you rest. You know, you think about it, it, it's not because of the holiness of the people. It's not because of their ability to follow God's law. It's not because of their great devotion to him, as we could tell from this whole story. It's, it's for none of those reasons that God now promised his presence would go with them. And not only that, he says, and I will give you rest. These people were caught up in idolatry, in immorality, and they're partying around the golden calf, you know, just shortly before this. And God promised his presence would go with the people, not because they were worthy, but because they had a mediator. A man named Moses stood between their sin and God and the holiness of God. Sin requires judgment, but Moses sought God and, and God found a way to bless his people through a mediator, through Moses. Of course, Paul tells us in the New Testament, there's one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, just like the children of Israel, you know, you and I dropped the ball we mess up. We fall short of the glory of God. Immorality, idolatry, whatever it is. And like the children of Israel, we need a mediator. And we experience the presence of God because of our mediator. Jesus. He's greater than Moses. I love these next words of Moses. And he said to him in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He draws a line and he's determined to have God's presence with Israel. And he wasn't just concerned about God's presence being with him, but with us. It's not, not just me, God, with us. Yeah, okay, you'll go with me, but we all need you. It's, it's us. See, he had a heart for God's people that was born out of being in the presence of God. And verse 16 continues. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. What a great conversation Moses is bringing us in on here. As he just converses with the Lord back and forth and pleads God for his presence. And the Lord says, okay Moses, I'll do what you ask. Because I know you, because I know your name, because your fa my favor is on your life. Because you've asked this, I won't just be with you personally. I'll come with the whole nation. And you know, I would say this, the favor of God is to have his presence, right? Moses says, isn't that what makes us distinct? Isn't that what makes us different from all the other people on the earth? That your presence is with us. It's the same tr true for us. And if God responds to Moses' intercession in that way, how much more does he respond to the intercession of Jesus who pleads for us day and night before the throne of God? You know, God literally says to Moses, my face, okay, my face will go with you. That's what he's saying. My face will go with you in that sense that the immediate presence of God will go with you. Now check this out. This is awesome. Verse 18 is worth underlining. Moses takes it one step further. Ups the game here. All the chips on the table, okay? Here it is. Moses said, please, show me your glory. I, I mean, that is the request of a heart 
that is just hungry for deeper intimacy with God. Please God, I got your favor, I got your presence, I'm so happy. Show me your glory, God. You know, I can't help but think of all of the experiences that Moses has already had with God. I mean, if, if you just do a quick, you know, review, okay? Burning bush, plagues, miracles, snakes, staffs, you know, Mount Sinai, parting sea, uh, the tablets written with the presence of God. You know, twice for 40 days in the presence of God up top of Mount Sinai. But Moses, in his hunger for God, he wasn't looking to, to live on yesterday's manna. I love that about Moses. You know, he wasn't content with the good old days. You know, he wasn't happy to tell the story from two years back or a year back or last week or yesterday. He wanted more of God today. And he was willing to press in. He was willing to draw nearer and nearer in the secret place of personal fellowship with God. Show me your glory, God. You know, when Peter first caught that vision of Jesus and met him at the Sea of Galilee and he saw Jesus for who he was, Peter said this, depart from me, God, because I'm a sinful and wicked man. Depart from me. But once he was brought into a relationship with the Lord and once we are brought into a relationship with the Lord, there becomes a desire and an appetite for more of his presence. You know, Jacob, when he wrestled with God, says, tell me your name. After wrestling all night, tell me your name. Reveal to me more of your character and your nature. Philip said to Jesus, Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And you know those words of Jesus. Hey man, see me as to see the Father. And Moses says, please show me your glory. Show me the weight and the substance of who you are. Of your nature. See the hunger for more of God is the true mark of revival. Hunger for more of God is the true mark of a restored relationship with God. And for Moses, whatever he had already experienced of God, he wanted more. Verse 19. This is the Lord speaking. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God, show me your glory. And God says, okay. I'll show you my goodness. I'll let all of my goodness pass before you. What an interesting thing because he asked for glory and God said, I'll show you my goodness. That's because the goodness of God and the glory of God are linked. The glory of God is good. See, God is not yin and yang, you know, the mixture of good and bad and the balance between that. God is just good. Pure good. All the time, God is good. God is good. And I actually think, you know, like Moses experienced here, you, you need a revelation from the Holy Spirit just to scratch the surface of understanding the idea that God is good. Because I, I really believe that the, the sinful human heart wants to say, no, God is not always good. I can't always trust him. He isn't always looking out for my best. And God says, you cannot understand my glory apart from my goodness, Moses. So let me show you my goodness. I'm eternally good. And I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. The name of the Lord, of course, is equivalent to his nature, his essence, his character. God says, I, I, I'm not going to, it's not that God is revealing to Moses a title, but that he's revealing to him his character. 
And the Lord says, and I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Martin Lloyd-Jones kind of pulled this whole idea together, trying to give an idea of what God said to Moses and he paraphrased it this way. I will stoop to your weakness and I will let you see something, but much more important than that, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you. I will give you a deeper insight and understanding into myself, into my character, into what I am, and that is what you really need to know. And isn't that true for us? That, that, that we need God to stoop to our weakness and to reveal to us his glory, his goodness, his nature, his character. But the Lord says this in verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. So God would not, could not literally show Moses his face. That, that helps us understand what we read earlier in verse 11. When it says Moses spoke with God face to face. Speaking with God as a man speaks to his friend. This also helps us understand you know, in the scripture, when we read about guys like, you know, Abraham having an encounter with God like he did in Genesis chapter 18, or Isaiah seeing the glory of God as he did in Isaiah chapter 6. What were they seeing? Were they seeing the face of God? No, no one can see the face of God. I would say this, they were seeing Jesus. See, truly no man can see God and live. But the same is true about Jesus. Think about it this way. Each time we ca catch a glimpse of who he is, something of the fleshly life dies. He, human flesh cannot glory in his presence. It dies in his presence. And when we, the people of God, catch a glimpse of who Jesus is, it, it brings about the life of God in our lives. Verse 21. We'll wrap up with these last few verses here. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. Wow. Paul, Paul tells us that rock was Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Wow, what a picture. Eh? Could you, I mean, this, uh, that is amazing. Protected by the hand of God, hidden away in this rock of refuge. Literally when God says, you're going to see my back. God's saying this, you're going to see the afterglow of my presence. You can't see me and live, but you can sense and experience my afterglow that I've been present and been there with you. But the only way for that to happen, Moses, is if you are tucked away and hidden in the cleft of the rock. Speaking of Jesus, he's our rock. Paul said in Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. I mean, literally, just like Moses was hidden in the rock, before God, you and I have been hidden in that rock. Christ, he was broken on the cross, you know, we might say. The cleft, hidden in the work of the cross and all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And the only way that we will ever see anything of God's glow or God's glory is to be hidden in Jesus. To be hidden in Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Mary and Beth, I'm going to invite you guys to come up here. Why don't you guys stand with me as they come? There's one thing. You know, that stirs in my heart uh, 
from this message, it's this idea. Man, I don't want the promise of God without the presence of God. How we need his presence. We need to freshly see his glory and experience his presence. Why don't we ask him for that this morning? Let's pray. God, like the children of Israel, we acknowledge that it's a disastrous thing to not have your presence. And God, we desire, as did they, to have both the promise and the presence. To have the hand of your blessing in our life, Lord, but more importantly, to have face-to-face relationship with you. To have it open. To have fellowship with the living God. And, And Lord, this morning, we just confess that we want more of you. We need more of you, Lord. And God, we confess in your presence that that we struggle with sin, Lord. That sometimes it has victory in our lives and sometimes we give our lives over to idolatry and to our senses. And at other times, Lord, we walk in the victory of your spirit and say yes to righteousness. But Lord, we thank you that we come before you by grace That it's by grace that you have given us your presence. And Lord, I pray that like Abraham, we would be people who walk by faith and not by sight. People who take you at your word and obediently follow you. And this morning, Lord, at the start of this new year, we're asking for more of your presence. Lord, show us your glory. God, may... Your favor be upon our lives, but may we increasingly discover the open and free relationship that we have with you because you have hidden us in the rock that is Christ Jesus. And so God, this morning we worship you. We praise you. We honor you. God, we glorify you. God, uh, before you, we acknowledge that you are good all the time. You are good. Would you reveal your goodness to us by your spirit? Would you show us your glory? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.